everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as S. George at R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. And I'm a little bit under the weather, but duty calls because they're <laughs> we, we've got happenings right now that we need to uh, discuss. Yeah, he can barely speak, but we had to get on right away as we record this. It's 5 p.m. on Monday, 5 p.m. Central Time on Monday. And um, shit is starting to hit the fan in a way that I think is going to be a little bit interesting to discuss. Um, we're probably going to break this episode up into two. Uh, we will recap Purdue at the end, um, but we won't preview Penn State here. We think that one deserves a little bit more time, given that it's functionally Michigan's first game of the season. There may also be a lot more of this stuff that we're going to talk about going on over the course of the week. It sounds like that timeline is coinciding. So yeah, we, we may have a lot more to cover in a couple of days that we'll have to come back to. Yeah, so it is chaos it's only been a few days since we last put out an episode and yet the ball rolls and it rolls and it rolls and i am trying to keep up with it and and failing but it's day one million of sign gate and i'm gonna kind of summarize what's happened so far so when we were driving to ann arbor on friday we got the news that stallions initially they reported that he had been fired and then subsequently reported that he had stepped down and then he released you know a statement through his attorney that said basically jim and the staff didn't know anything about this and go michigan basically and then since then We've gotten a lot more information, and I mean a lot more information in the last like hour and a half, so we are processing in real time. But uh, we got reports circulating first that Michigan has received a notice of disciplinary action under the Big Ten's sportsmanship policy. Um, it received that notice on Saturday, and we are getting the reports about it for the first time today on Monday. And they've been given until Wednesday to provide an official response to the allegations that it violated that policy. Uh, that policy is has been at the center of any attempts by the Big Ten to penalize Michigan immediately and in the in the very near term. So the notice apparently did not have a contemplated punishment specified, but everything written over the last few days makes it clear that any meaningful punishment is intended to go after Jim Harbaugh. I mean, they, they right. really, it really does seem to be that they want Harbaugh's head on a spike. And so it seems to be that the writing is on the wall, that if any meaningful punishment for Harbaugh does get handed down, that Michigan and Harbaugh are going to pursue legal recourse immediately. And we know that because on Saturday, as we were making our way to Ann Arbor for the game, we got um, the story broke of Santa Ono's letter to the Big Ten commissioner that he sent them in advance of the meeting that they had on Friday in which it became clear that they wanted Harbaugh to accept a two-game suspension and Ono told them politely to pound sand, basically. Yeah, we don't know if the two-game suspension was relevant. We got his uh, letter that he sent to Tony Petiti in advance of that meeting, and then everything else that's come out of that is kind of speculation as far as exactly what was proposed and what the reaction yeah, was. Yeah, I saw reporting that suggested that it was a two-game suspension, but that Petiti wouldn't 
commit to that being the end of this bullshit. And Santa Ono obviously wouldn't take that. Like, why would I take a two-game suspension if you can revisit this and just... Right, that might be an indefinite suspension. Yeah, if, if I'm getting a suspension, I want a, I want a waiver. I want a release of claims, basically. Well, and on top of Santa Ono's email, we've also gotten... I mean, everybody in the college football world today has been citing Michigan sources as saying Michigan will pursue legal action if any punishment is handed down. Yeah. That's obviously coming from Michigan. And, you know, whether that actually holds true, whereas if the Big Ten tried to implement something negligible, like a, a one or two game suspension, would they still play that out? Like, we don't know, but everything that's out there is Michigan is going to fight back if there is anything meaningful that comes out of this. Right. So we also got a report today from Ross Dellinger at Yahoo, who has been all over this story from Jump, that the NCAA has shared its preliminary evidence with the Big Ten and has not found anything directly tying Jim Harbaugh to whatever Connor Stallions was doing. And I'm going to revisit that point because I think it's an important one for the purpose of discussing the Big Ten uh, sportsmanship policy. I understand that the NCAA has that bylaw 11.1.1 that we discussed in the last episode, but the Big Ten doesn't have an analogous bylaw. The one you're referring to is about a head coach, head coach presumption of accountability or responsibility Correct. for actions committed by, committed by his staff. Correct. And I, I want to talk about that. As far as I know, the Big Ten doesn't have an analogous rule. I haven't seen anybody not seen citing yeah. an analogous rule for the Big Ten. I didn't have all day to look through their bylaws. I wish I did. Hire me to do this so I can do this instead of my actual job, please. But I, I didn't see any analogous rule. And so, you know, the NCAA has this rule where they can hold Harbaugh responsible, but I I don't think that the Big Ten does. And and that's going to be an important distinction for reasons I'm going to discuss in a minute. Yep. But there was one other big announcement that came out today yeah, just in the last hour. We're getting there. Again, it, <laughs> there's, there's a lot to cover it's here. So, it's so much going on. And then finally, we got the report from the Associated Press. And I want to point out something about the Associated Press first and foremost, which is the Associated Press is not Pete Thamel. <laughs> so I spoke to um, my cousin, who is a journalist and also an avid listener. So hello, Andrea. It, it, glad to see you here. And I asked her about this reporting. And, and Matt knows as a former journalist as well. But the Associated Press has much higher standards for anonymous sourcing of information than ESPN does. They just are the gold standard of, of reporting in that way. That's right, yeah. I mean, the Associated Press has been around forever, and they are very much the here-are-all-the-facts news organization. There's not a ton of you know, trying to paint in a picture around opinion or even a lot of often in-depth analysis. It's very much, like I said, here are the facts, here's what we know, and we are very credible. We are going to establish you know, from all sourcing that we can get whether something is true before we report it. It makes them barely relevant in the 21st century media landscape because that's so unlike what you know everybody else does, basically. But it does mean that when they have something, they have something. It's very credible. Yeah, despite what the Ohio State slappies will tell you. Again, we'll get there. But the report from the Associated Press was that a former employee at a Big Ten football program said it was his job to steal signs and he was given details from multiple league schools to compile a spreadsheet of play-calling signals used by Michigan this year. Employee said he recently shared the documents, which showed the Wolverines' signs and corresponding plays, as well as screenshots of text message exchanges with staffers at other Big Ten schools to Michigan. So he gave all of that information to Michigan. 
Now, here's obviously the critical component. And it's a little bit unclear at this stage. I'm, I'm going to say that because I'm not an asshole who assumes things <laughs> only in favor of the position that I want to take. But, you know, at this point, right, the a purported rule violation by Stallions and Michigan is what we coined in-person scouting by proxy, right? right? If anybody says anything to you about recording anything, ignore everything they say because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. It's not about video devices. It's not about, it's about in person scouting in violation of the rule okay right and in stallion's case the allegation is that he was using other people his students the possibly other network. people he knew right he is procuring third-party individuals to record signs send that to him and that's the violation is that those people were in person at games against future michigan opponents that's right. the, the crux of the rule if those people went to a michigan game or went to a, an opposing game took notes by hand on paper and turned them over to Connor Stallions, he would be facing the same violation. Right. The it's in-person scouting. That's the, the critical question. component of the violation is not the recording device. I just, I want that to be clear because it matters for the purposes of what I'm about to say. So it's not abundantly clear from the Associated Press's reporting, but if it was the case that Let's say I'm thinking about last year's Michigan schedule. Our first Big Ten game was Maryland, right? Uh, September, Maryland. Yep. That if Maryland kicked this off and said, here's what we were able to glean about Michigan's signs in week four, and we started this spreadsheet, and then subsequent opponents of Michigan accessed and added to that information and kept adding to it and kept adding to it to the point that maybe the team that played Michigan at the end of the year had the most available possible information. The idea is that if Connor Stallions can deputize his fucking mom or whoever went to these games to essentially be an agent of Michigan, the idea here would be anybody who obtained, used, or had access to the information on this spreadsheet after Maryland, in my hypothetical. After whoever saw Michigan in person during right. the season. Once you've seen someone and shared that information by receiving it, you are violating the same rule. Or if what Connor Stallions did is a violation, what you are doing is then also right. a violation. If Connor Stallions deputized his mom, you've deputized Rutgers' staff right. or Maryland's staff or whomever staff you obtained these signals from that were compiled in this spreadsheet. If Connor Stallions is guilty of in-person scouting by proxy, so are you. Right. right. This is fundamentally exactly what Michigan is being accused of. It's getting third-party in-person scouting information. Assuming that someone was at at least one of Michigan's games last year and then shared that information. It seems right. very unlikely that they weren't because... Otherwise, I'm not quite sure what you're sharing. You're just sharing the same information that everybody could have gotten off the TV copies. Correct. Like maybe it's just... So logic just, doesn't really... It doesn't really make sense, but it is theoretically possible that all of them were just like, okay, what if your sign stealer is better than mine? Let's democratize the process of watching the television broadcast film and the All-22 and work together on this group project of taking down Michigan. But the... So that's possible. I'm not going to tell you that's not possible and that there was no violation here. But, but if it is the case that you 
are accused of obtaining information from a team that had already played Michigan and thus had scouted them in person for you, you violated the same rule as Connor Stallions is alleged to. Full stop. Exactly. And that seems to be the allegation here. Otherwise, there's no reason for Michigan to release this because it doesn't add anything. Right. Well, and this is the, obviously coming from Michigan. What the Ohio State fans will tell you is they're releasing it because it's desperate and they're trying to throw mud and they know it's not the same violation, but they're trying to make it look like it is. I mean, that's the cope that we've got. This is gotten. pretzel brain logic that says it's okay for us to get third-party information. Our third-party scouting scheme is A-OK, but yours, that's, that's cheating. That's tainted. And I just, it, it's amazing because, like, I tweeted this, but I don't want to hear a single goddamn word from anybody in the Big Ten about cheating or tainted wins or any of that because if what is being alleged here is also true, same as with the Stallion stuff. All we have are allegations right now about what he did to procure third-party in-person scouting information. If everybody else in the Big Ten was sharing information for the same purpose, you were not only doing the same shit, but you were compounding it by collaborating, colluding among yourselves, specifically to beat Michigan. And Michigan beat every fucking team on the schedule last year, so you can hold those L's forever, and there is not a single goddamn word you can say about it without your brain devolving into tiny baby brain status where logic ceases to exist. Yeah, I mean, talk about our vast network. Your vast network is all coaches? It's actual scouts, which actually is more egregious to me. Uh, sending somebody to just a, a random person to record information, they're not giving you valuable imagine football send, information. Imagine sending, like, my mom. She'd be like... She'd be like recording the person moving the chains. She'd be like, that's what you wanted, right? The people with the, the stuff holding up stuff on the sideline, that's what you wanted? Like, the like ball's on the ground. Why is, why is the plane out over? Yeah, oh, my poor mother. She's catching strays. But no, She's I mean, getting there. She's getting there. But, but like, you know what I mean, right? Somebody who actually has the eye is who you're obtaining this information from, not just, you know, a student who got cold because it was rainy in the middle of Penn State UMass. Like, shut up. Right, this is actually somebody doing the scouting work for you of putting the signs together with video of Michigan's plays to match them up. Like, this is more extensive than what Michigan was doing. So, again, I just, I don't want to hear a single excuse from anybody. And I'm still seeing all the, again, like, pretzel brain logic of how their sign stealing was legal, but Michigan's isn't or whatever else. We need to suspend Harbaugh immediately, even though, like, oh, we know there's no evidence, but that's because the NCAA investigation hasn't played out yet, which, like, the, well, how could you possibly be arguing for immediate punishment if that's your, your stance is that, you know, the, the NCAA process hasn't, like, all of it is just immediately telling on yourself that you're not arguing in good faith or taking this seriously at all. It's just all bullshit, and I'm not going to hear another word about it until all of this plays out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Anybody who is saying now, okay, but we, what we did is fine. Like, you're not arguing in good faith. Correct. And I'm not entertaining your crap, okay? So shut up. So there have also been a lot of rumors. Yeah, this started Sunday, right? There were rumors circulating that Michigan was going to go on the warpath here with the mutually assured destruction methodology of we have a bunch of information, like an assortment of evidence of shady things happening including one we heard was that Michigan signs, signs were being stolen and circulated. That one dropped within 24 hours. There's also a rumor going around that Michigan has evidence of practice footage being illicitly filmed or stolen, which is interesting because this last summer, Michigan put up a large uh, black fence around its practice field for quote-unquote privacy reasons. Not sure that was a coincidence. So this is speculation, of course, as to whether that exists, but there's been enough smoke going around that Michigan has evidence of various things that would be pretty embarrassing for other programs that 
it seems likely that this isn't the end of it. Embarrassing if you're sitting around clutching your pearls about this. Well, right, yes. You fucking assholes. Right, so it, it seems possible, if not likely, that there's more coming here in the next 24 to 48 hours, however Michigan wants to play this and whatever they do have. And I think all of it is just, it, it's telling the Big Ten the same way the Santa Ono letter did, that if you want to do this the painful way, we're happy to make it very, very, very painful for everybody involved. And I think that probably brings us to what we want to spend a little bit more time on, which is, you're yeah. the lawyer here. So. Uh, yeah, I, so much lawyering lately. Um, but no, there are there are a couple of things here, which is to say, we'll start with the Big Ten and their sportsmanship policy. So, And this is really the crux of the whole legal argument, right? If they hand down a punishment for Jim Harbaugh, it's going to be that the notice that they received indicated that this was with regards to the sportsmanship policy policy. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things that I think is going to be interesting here is the wording of the policy says this. It lists a whole bunch of people whose conduct is governed by the policy. And it says, you know, employees, coaches, student athletes, the band, the spirit squads, the cheerleaders, mascots, general student body or any individual or group of individuals over whom your institution maintains some level of authority. So this is expansive with respect to whom it applies. Like you could get a fine for your students doing something, like the student section doing something unsavory under the sportsmanship policy. But one of the things that it says under 10.1.1 is in addition, any member of the above groups may be held individually accountable if found to have committed an offensive action as contemplated by this policy. And what's interesting about that language is it says I may be held accountable if I am found to have committed an offensive action as contemplated by this policy. It doesn't appear to have the breadth of application that the NCAA's 11.1.1 head coach accountability rule has. So this seems to suggest if you're Jim Harbaugh, I can only be punished for my own violation of this policy. I can't be punished for Connor Stallions' violation of this policy. And so why are you coming after me? And I think that would be, to the extent that this does go to the courts, that would be one of the arguments that, that they raise here is you're holding me accountable when you can't hold me accountable. You can hold Michigan accountable or you can hold Connor Stallions accountable, but you can't hold me accountable. And there's a legitimate argument to be made that you can't hold Michigan accountable by making me the scapegoat for Michigan under right. the policy. I'm not as the executive well. representative of the University of Michigan. The reason that policy, or the way that that policy has always been applied previously for institutional penalties, is fines. Right. right. All previous Big Ten punishments have been players, typically players, like for the Michigan State tunnel incident last year, for example. Kari Crump ended up getting an eight-game suspension for the Big Ten from the Big Ten about a month after the incident. Once they did their investigation. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if Michigan State actually was fined, but it's typically a player who commits an act. I believe Michigan State was fined. Okay, well, regardless, my point is that typically it's a player action where the player gets punished, and then the institution may also get punished with a fine. This is a much different case because... Yeah, it seems like the punishment of Harbaugh as the representative of the institution, like we are punishing Michigan by suspending Harbaugh, is a little bit outside the scope of what they're able to do on the face of the policy. It also just doesn't really 
it doesn't really pass the logic test for me because at that point you could pick anyone. You know, what if this happened at Oklahoma under Bob Stoops and they said, man, that offense is tough. We're going to delegate Lincoln Riley as the arbitrary punishee because we think that's the most damaging to Oklahoma. Like you can't just pick somebody and say somebody else committed a violation. Therefore, we're punishing you because it hurts. Yeah, I, I don't think that's how the rule is intended to be written. And it's really not how it is written. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so there, there's some stuff there. I, I don't want to delve too much into what the legal ramifications would look like should this go forward, because, you know, there are lawyers somewhere who are spending many, many hours <laughs> of their lives parsing this policy and preparing whatever filing will come if the Big Ten decides to take action here. Billable hours, baby. And I'll talk about it once it's filed. It, you know, to the extent that this does happen, you'll have me on for an emergency episode after I've vetted whatever it is that they have filed. Well, maybe but, just like for the next 48 hours, if this does come down the way that people are speculating, if Harbaugh is issued some sort of suspension here, whether that's two games, six games, indefinite, as people have, have speculated, what happens immediately? Like, what's Michigan's course of action there? Because I think you can lay that out pretty yeah, quickly. Yeah, I can lay that out pretty easily. I'm not, I, again, I'm not going to, well, yeah, I can talk about that. What I don't want to do is, like, parse the bylaws for yeah, eternity. No, 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 no. Because people get bored. I might be talking, number one, that's boring as shit. And number two, I might be looking at different provisions than what they ultimately end up arguing about. There's a lot here that you could pull at threads, just loose threads, like a fucking sweater unraveling if you really wanted to keep pulling. Well, and I think you made the point on Twitter. That's as not you an were, effective use of our time. No, but as you were going back and forth with somebody, you made the point that they don't all have to be winners here. The Big Ten could have lots of viable arguments for suspending Harbaugh. But if Michigan has one good defense, that's enough. Correct. You don't have to be, you don't need a likelihood of success on the merits of every single one of the arguments you're making in order to get the TRO, right? Yeah. So talk about that one. then. So, the, so the TRO and what happens next if yeah. the Big Ten issues a, a punishment here that Michigan deems not acceptable? If the Big Ten issues a punishment, they're going to run, the Michigan's going to run to court right away. And the question, there's a lot of questions about which court they're going to run to. Is it the federal court? Is it a state court? Um, but it doesn't really matter. The The path forward is very much the same. I have reasons that I think I would go to state court. Um, not a professional legal opinion, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. But this oh. is a person who is barred as a lawyer in Michigan, so she has some pretty intimate familiarity with the, yeah. <laughs> the, the relevant considerations here. It's, it's just the discovery issue, really, is why I would go. Because in Michigan, the rule is that if you, you file your complaint and you file a, a temporary restraining order at the same time, and if you serve your initial disclosures, which is just a bunch of information that's like, here are the parties, here's who I think might know stuff about this case, here's if we have an insurance policy that applies to this case, it's just like a list of stuff that you have mm -hmm. to give at the outset of a case that like starts the discovery process going, w immediately after you serve those, discovery is live, which means you can start issuing subpoenas, you can start, and to the extent that you want to make this as painful as possible for people, the faster you can start issuing subpoenas and shit, the better. Whereas in federal court, you have to like confer with your opposing counsel and have, and so they can like sandbag you a little bit timing wise if you do it in federal. So like there are reasons we can debate them endlessly about whether you would rather be in federal court or state court. Yeah, let's come back to that because the discovery point is an interesting one that people have been talking yeah, about very, been, very badly People have online. been making a lot of really, really bad opinions about discovery it's on the bad legal today. takes heaven or it's, hell depending on your no it's hell it's been it's been fucking terrible but so michigan would seek you know, a temporary restraining order and what they would do is essentially say listen we're going to suffer irreparable harm if jim harbaugh is not on the sideline this weekend and 
basically we have it's it's like there's a lot going on with the TRO, but like the two most important things for our purposes of discussion here are going to be are you likely to succeed on the merits, which is is your underlying claim and the underlying claim in this case is is that the Big Ten is punishing me in violation of its rules. Yeah. Are you likely to succeed on that claim? That's one of the most critical aspects of getting a TRO issued because no court on the planet is going to issue a TRO if the underlying violation of con- is like bogus, right. right? Like if I am like, oh no, I'm going to suffer irreparable harm because, you know, person is do- doing this to me and this person's like, I've never met you. I don't know you. Who are you? Like, there, wh- where's your life? There has to be some success? reasonable argument as a starting point that yeah, you actually can win a case. has to maybe win, yeah. right? They're not going to enjoin people's behaviors over a case that has like no fucking shot in hell. So but to the point is- earlier, given the way the bylaw is written and given the fact that there's really no precedent for suspending a head coach for somebody else's action, Michigan has a pretty reasonable starting point argument there, right? Yeah, again, I I don't want to get into them because there's too freaking many, but yes. So they have to establish one thing first, which is that, you know, they're likely to succeed on the merits of this case, that their case against the Big Ten essentially holds water. It's legit. It's not bullshit. Yeah. And I think they can do that. And I especially think they can do that in light of the information that was just leaked. In fact, I think that is perhaps the point of the leak. Because one thing that is going to make the Big Ten look very, very foolish in the, or make it look like it is being malicious or arbitrary, arbitrary. Yeah. In, its abil- in its decision to enforce this against Jim Harbaugh is to say, you have credible evidence that eight other coaches or 10 other coaches yeah, or we don't know the exact number there from, are, right. are engaged in similar behavior, but I'm the only one on the hook here. He's, the, the leak makes it look arbitrary and makes it seem arbitrary and makes it seem like you are in bad faith going out of your way to penalize me. And that, if... If they do decide to suspend Jim Harbaugh, the first line of whatever I file says, despite credible evidence that seven other Big Ten coaches are engaged in similar conduct, Michigan has issued, or the Big Ten has issued a suspension as to only one coach, Michigan's Jim Harbaugh. Such a decision is insert arbitrary bullshit. Right. And if your argument is that we have to suspend him immediately while the investigation plays out, then Michigan's basically making the same allegation against whatever number of other Big Ten coaches. And the same logic has to apply. Yeah. You You suspend suspend everybody who's alleged to be involved here or you suspend nobody. That's right. And that feels, so that feels like a winning argument to you. I think that, I think that's solid. Yeah. And I I do, I really do think that's the point of the leak. Mm -hmm. I think that's the point of the leak because Number one, it's so that when, you know, the commissioner goes back to have his meeting about what he's going to do, he realizes and all of the other presidents and all of the other people in the room that are going to be decision makers here realize that the guns are pointed at them now, too. Right. Right. It's mutually assured destruction. It's everybody's got guns on everybody. And at this point, if one person wants to pull the trigger, like you want to take us down, we're taking everybody down with us. Right. So that's the first point of it. Right. It's to put pressure on the decision about whether or not to punish at all. Right. But it also, I think helps them in the legal battle that would ensue for those reasons because you have reason to allege in your complaint or your filing or whatever you're putting in front of a court that says 
why me? You're singling mm-hmm. out me in a way that is, you know, in bad faith, in a way that violates the rules, in a way that X, Y, Z. And, and they want all of that evidence out there. They want to say, we gave you evidence that suggested that everybody else did the exact same shit and you only cared about the evidence against me. You didn't care about the evidence against everybody else, right? right. That's the point, I think, of the, of the leak. That's the point of turning over that information. It's, it's fundamental, I think, to the way that they want to play this. So that's step one, likelihood of success on the merits. And all of that, I think, is baked into likelihood of success on the merits. And that's when they apply, basically, or, or you know, file a lawsuit seeking the temporary restraining order slash injunction. And what's the timeline for that? Fast. Um, TROs can be issued in a matter of, like, hours. I mean, they can be pretty fast. I, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I've done a TRO. Um, but sometimes I think Michigan even is willing to issue them without notice to the other party. Like, they don't even have to give the Big Ten time to respond. The court can issue it without even hearing what the Big Ten has to say, I think. So there's been some speculation that the Big Ten might wait until the end of the week to give Michigan limited response time. But if even if the Big Ten were to announce a suspension Friday at noon, well, Michigan... Well, Friday is a problem because it is a federal holiday and the court is not going to be open. Interesting. So okay. I like that actually is kind of an issue. Um, it's Veterans Day and... That's a court holiday. So Thursday is is the absolute latest we could actually get. Okay, a so if it came in Thursday this. at noon, Michigan could have a temporary restraining order in place by Thursday at four p.m. Yeah, it can happen fast. It can. I don't know a hundred. Like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to be super uh, like specific specific about this because, like I said, it's been a long time since I've done one in Michigan. But what I'm saying is fast because the whole point of these things is that the, the only times I've ever done them actually have been in automotive cases. Um, it's usually a, an instance where like a supplier says, we're going to stop shipping this part tomorrow because the contract price that we have with you is too cheap. We can't afford to sell to you at this price anymore. We're raising our prices. And if you don't accept our price raise, we're going to stop shipping. And then the, you know, the Insert car company automaker or whatever. is like, it's going to collapse all of General Motors or Ford or Chrysler if you stop shipping this part because it's going to shut down all of our assembly lines. We won't be able to work. We won't be able to do anything. It's going to cause billions of dollars of damage. No, I need an order preventing you from doing this right now, right now. Yeah. And they happen quickly for that reason because a lot of times, a lot of people's livelihoods and you know that kind of thing, it, they rest on, on the ability to get an order from the court fast. So once you've got it, where does it go, right? The, a temporary restraining order is by definition temporary. It doesn't last forever. And so you push forward towards a full adjudication of this claim on the merits, right? A full-fledged, whatever it is, hearing, trial, whatever. But the point is really, as long as you can get the TRO or injunction in place for long enough to get Michigan through the season, they don't give a shit what happens after that, right? right. And so... That's really the point. It's a, it's a maneuver to buy time. And I think in light of the information that just got leaked to the press, they're, they're in a much better position for it to work than they were even this morning. So Yeah, that makes sense. There was a lot of discussion about this on the internet. People were talking about 
you know, Michigan doesn't want to go through discovery. Like the one thing the NCAA doesn't have is subpoena power. And who wants to get, didn't Stu Mandel say that? A bunch of people have been saying that about how Michigan doesn't want to go through discovery here because it's going to be catastrophic for the athletic department, the football program, whatever. Number one, the NCAA is not going to be a party to this case. So you don't give them subpoena power, actually. This will be Michigan versus Big Ten. And maybe Tony Petiti. And maybe Tony Petiti in his capacity as the commissioner. But, like, you're not giving the NCAA subpoena power. I'm not suing the NCAA, jackass. So, like, number one, wrong. (laughs) Number two... People are like, I saw so much. It was, I was like ready to tear my eyes out today. There was some like and steam fo- coming out of your no, ears. Like I'm, it was so bad. There was some like football talk account that was like, Michigan is going to threaten and then back down because they don't want to go through discovery. And then all of the fucking replies are just Ohio State fans being like, yeah, because everything will come out. Like Matt Weiss's computer crimes and Hamburger Gate and all. And I was like, for the love of God, that is not how this shit works. Right? Like, I can tell you as a person who litigates cases that the number one fight the number one fight that happens in all lawsuits ever is the scope of discovery, right? So we spend an absolutely insane amount of time arguing with our opposing counsel about whether we think what they have asked for is beyond the scope of what is relevant to this case. We do it for months, literally months. I've spent hundreds of hours of my life doing this. So no, you don't just get to be like, now I want every piece of dirt that Michigan has ever, I am sniffing around in Michigan's dirty laundry forever. Like that's not how this works. You don't just give them unlimited access to your hard drives and be like, all right, I guess you can find whatever you want. It's not how it works. So if, if the NCAA in Michigan, or not the NCAA, I said this, if the Big Ten in Michigan are embroiled in a lawsuit and the Big Ten says, okay, we want evidence of this, 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 and this, there's some shit that Michigan can just be like, no. It's not relevant. We don't think it's relevant and you don't get it. And then the Big Ten has to get the court to agree that it is relevant before Michigan has to turn it over. You don't just suddenly have to give them every password to everything you own and let them sniff around for whatever the fuck they want. That's not how this works. Right. Okay? So unless you're telling me that what Matt Weiss was up to is relevant to whether or not Tony Petiti exceeded the scope of what the Big Ten sportsmanship policy allows. Which obviously is not relevant. (laughs) Then they don't get to see it. That's not how this shit works. Okay? So, like, stop it. Like, that's not to say discovery does suck. It's painful. It's fucking boring and expensive. And there is stuff that's going to come out that is a little bit unsavory, probably for everybody involved. Like, there right. is some risk to that. I'm not saying there's no risk to that. I but, think that like, was a... they're going to, the FBI, like, shut up. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to need you to shut up immediately. Well, that was something we were talking about earlier was people keep saying, like, Michigan doesn't want to be involved in this. Michigan doesn't want discovery. Bad stuff's going to come out. But the way I see it, and I think the way you see it, is that if there is some sort of extended slash indefinite suspension that comes down for Harbaugh pending the outcome of the NCAA investigation, basically what the Big Ten is saying is that Jim Harbaugh is functionally fired, or at least temporarily unavailable to Michigan until some date in the future. The worst case scenario for Michigan and discovery would be that evidence comes out that Harbaugh did know or was implicated in what Stallions was doing. And he gets fired, in which case it's basically just 
right. a furtherance of what has already come down but from the, the Big, Big Ten. But the Big Ten has already constructively fired him if they are suspending him indefinitely. So who fucking cares? Right. So really, Michigan has little or nothing to lose in that scenario. Whereas, I mean, you made the point that as soon as they file, they can start issuing subpoenas and they can subpoena the Big Ten, Tony Petiti. They can subpoena the NCA, right? Not a named party, but they still have the evidence that is being handed over to the Big Ten as part of this investigation that Tony Petiti is pursuing. I would, a subpoena to the NCAA. They can issue subpoenas to the PI firm, to anybody they have evidence is linked to the PI firm, right? To any of these alleged science if dealers they and allege other programs. that the PI firm was relevant to the claim, right? Well, so if the NCA says this is the source of our claim, which is what we got from the original Yahoo stories about the NCA investigation, then certainly you would want to understand the source of that information, right? If you're Michigan? Yes and no. I mean, I th- you you would want to if you're Michigan. But if the narrow issue in the proceeding is, did Tony Petiti violate the scope of the rules? What does who hired the PI firm have bearing on whether or not Tony Petiti violated the scope of the rules? Like That's, that's the kind of stuff where I think you're arguably, you're, you're pushing the area. bounds of relevance yeah. in, a, in a significant way. Right. They could but, subpoena all of the alleged sign stealers at other schools, right? We need to understand the scope of what's happening everywhere else, and we need all documents, all video. Maybe. All, I mean, if you're going to allege that this is a is misaligned with precedent or with what's happening at other schools, that's a very relevant argument, right? Well, right. So that's, that's another thing. Including the allegation, if they include the allegations, which I suspect they will, sure. that this stuff is happening everywhere else, but I'm the only one getting punished for it then yeah, at that point, whether or not it's happening everywhere else is relevant to whether or not my punishment is arbitrary, right? Right? Because if you know that six other coaches, seven other coaches, 10 other coaches have been involved in a similar thing and you are not punishing them, then I get discovery about whether or not they were actually involved in that thing because it tends to prove whether or not my punishment was arbitrary, right? Right. And so, yeah, at that point, yes, right? But if they don't make those allegations, if they limit the scope of what they plead in the complaint to just, I think you violated the rules and I'm not going to muck it up with these with these other allegations, sure. then it's outside the scope. It depends on what they plead, right? And so... Like, it's just back to the earlier point, though, the like mutually deterred destruction. Like, if if you want to, from Michigan's point of view, make that argument more broad and start subpoenaing everybody... You can make it, you can make it really unpleasant for everybody else involved, including the Big Ten, Tony Petiti, and every other school in the Big Ten. And again, from Michigan's point of view, I don't see that you really have anything to lose there, unless the NCA or I'm sorry, the Big Ten comes down with say a one or two game suspension, and then you fear that discovery might unearth something more that would result in a more severe punishment. But then you're into, I guess, a strategic question that. Right. We'll just have to see Your how this... Your question is just, is it worth suing over at all if right. all we're getting is one to two games? That's a different question than, you know, the issue of discovery. There's just been so much misinformation about what discovery is. Right. And I, it pissed me off to no end. I Like, you, you could, Matt could see the steam coming out of my ears all day long. Correct. I, I couldn't believe it. But yeah, and, and all the arguments, like I said, just didn't really make sense to me because from Michigan's point of view, I've got... If it is an indefinite suspension or a lengthy suspension, I've got almost nothing to lose. So just go for it, and whatever comes out from other parties is all upside for me. Only helps in my argument and in making this as unpleasant for everybody else as you've made it for me for the last two weeks over something that is, you know, pitily level two bullshit at worst. Yeah, I think that's right. I just think that the way that this looks right now, assuming that 
all of the other Big Ten programs who received these spreadsheets and these messages were engaged in the same in-person scouting by proxy as stallions, that they weren't just collaborating to exchange notes on television broadcasts. Well, the other thing is that, I mean, you were making the point that the real question here is, what does the Big Ten have the authority to do? It's not really at this point, did Michigan violate an NCA rule? Because that enforcement, I mean, Big Ten would have to wait for the NCA to establish that, and they're not. I'm not sure I follow what you just said. If the Big Ten issues a suspension this week. Correct. Okay. Really, the question is, does Tony Petiti have the ability to punish Jim Harbaugh, assuming that's who gets punished, for violation of the sportsmanship policy? It's not really, did Michigan commit an NCAA violation? That's a question for the NCAA to figure out. Correct. So the question here with what other schools were doing also, I don't think is really, did they also commit an NCAA violation? It's, did they do something that is similarly in violation of the sportsmanship policy? And I have to think that sharing other, other teams' signs and colluding to share information to give someone else a competitive advantage is a violation if what Connor Stallions was doing was a violation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair argument. But I think if you're Michigan, you want these behaviors to be as analogous as possible. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? The more analogous they are, they did the exact same shit as us, right. is better than... They were doing something that was really close to what we were doing. It's just, it's of for course. persuasive purposes, it's better if right. it's identical. And but if you can argue that it's different, but of similar severity or more competitive, advent, like more advantageous competitively, I think you've still got a similar argument that this is a sportsmanship violation. And if that's what you're coming at us, at us with, you certainly have to go back at everyone else with the same 100%. sort of punishment. I mean, what it comes down to is if you're, if you are prepared to suspend Jim Harbaugh for this. You should be prepared to suspend everybody else for this too. Right. And I'm just not sure of it. I'm not sure Tony Petiti wants to suspend half of the Big Ten's coaches over this. I'm sure he does not. So like, shut up. I feel a little bit bad for Tony Petiti. Like he's been thrust into this and there are no good outcomes here for him. But yeah, I, I kind of agree that it seems... He's a former lawyer. If oh, anybody yeah. knows a slippery slope, it's that motherfucker. Let's go. Right. And you have <laughs> to think go. that if you don't feel like you have a winning argument and it's going to be bad for you and everyone else involved to actually take this into court and you know that's where Michigan's going to go, if I'm him, I'm not super incentivized to do that. But, I mean, if he does, then that's that's obviously the way this is going to go for Michigan. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out over about the next uh, 48 hours or so since Michigan was given reportedly until Wednesday to respond, at which point some sort of decision has to be made by, by the Big Ten. Yeah, that's right. So we're TBD on all of that, but the way that it looks right now is... You think this looks good for Michigan? I do. I mean, I just think assuming that the way that we are admittedly are reading between the lines on what the Associated Press is reporting suggests that half of the Big Ten engaged in in-person scouting by proxy by deputizing members of opposing coaching staffs right. to sign steal or in-person scout Michigan in their games against Michigan. That's what it reads like. Right. If that's what happened, then I, I don't really know how you can say what Stallions did on behalf of Michigan or, you know, and I don't even think it's on behalf of Michigan because, again, there's no evidence that suggests that anybody instructed him to do this. But what Stallions did and what ended up presumably advantaging Michigan, right, 
is of the exact same character and quality right. as your in-person scouting by proxy, except you used a Rutgers assistant to do it or a Michigan State assistant to do it or a Penn State right. assistant to do it. And again, if you're it. punishing the head coach for the actions of a staffer without his knowledge or implication of his involvement, then that presumably also has to get passed on to everybody. So it, yeah, it's it's a, a a pretty good slippery slope argument, it feels like. Where, right, I just don't know, you know how you can come at one and not the right. others. And they might try, but I just think that's going to make the court battle so much more difficult for the Big Ten. I actually thought before this morning that, or before this afternoon, that the Big Ten had the better of the legal arguments here because the sportsmanship policy, the more you read that, the more I'm like, how has any team in the Big Ten signed on to this? It is <laughs> breathtakingly broad. But you made in the point that its the... ability, yeah. in 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 the amount of deference and power it gives to the commissioner, it reads a lot. Like, do you remember when this was happening in the NFL that like Goodell would just do whatever he wants, and they were like, he's judge, jury, and executioner. Yep. And the, there was an issue about whether the NFL and the next time they collectively bargained that the players association was going to change fundamentally alter Roger Goodell's ability to come after people. This feels of the same character as far as the level of discretion that they give the commissioner. And when you give someone that much discretion, it's really hard to complain about how they exercise it. You like you've consented to the giving them this much discretion. It's hard to complain about how they exercise it. And so I still think they had a pretty good argument about, the individual component okay. that an individual it's, can be penalized yes, for. I thought that argument was viable and fine, but on the on the grand scheme of things, I kind of thought the Big Ten had the better of the arguments here, which There's is enough ambiguity basically th- right. that they can. It's super amorphous. How much time I have to give you to respond? What I'm yeah, able to do? It's all like do. what's reasonable for the commissioner. It's super super. There's no like 90 days and notice of allegations like the NCAA's. Is. There's no structure, and so. You know, when you have that level of, of ambiguity, it's not that hard to say, I was operating within that ambiguity. Of course I was. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that was, I thought that was uphill for Michigan. But if there really is credible evidence that suggests that everybody else is involved in this, but only one person is getting punished for it. And not a person who was directly implicated. And as a, has been established yes. several times from what we've heard from the NCAA it's side of things. It's really hard to say I was exercising my discretion reasonably and punishing one person and nobody else when they've alleged to have engaged in similar conduct. And so I really do think if that's, if the information suggests what I think it suggests based on my read of what the Associated Press is reporting, I just think that's going to be a much, much harder. It's a much tougher sell in the rooms where they're deciding whether or not to punish people. And it's a much tougher sell to a court. I just think that, I think that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we're going to find out here in, uh, in the next so two days or so. <laughs> it's, it's wild. And uh, I saw since we've been on that Dellinger is now reporting that Ryan Day's family is not involved. The, the reports are false that Ryan Day's family is involved with. I think that's already been established, right? PI or whatever we've seen multiple nonsense. reports from people, including Ohio State people, who have said, we know who the firm is, the PI firm that's involved. And it's not the one owned by Ryan Day's brother, but it's a different one in New Hampshire. So there's possible connections there, but I don't think there was really any ongoing implication, or at least not serious implication, that Ryan Day's brother was the one involved. It's more, was Ohio State involved with the firm that was actually hired? And that's still uncertain. But yeah, I don't doubt that there's going to be some 
additional information coming out from Michigan's end of things here in the next day or two, just to further paint their side of the, the picture. And what happens from there, I, I have no idea. I hope they give us the same slow, steady stream of leaks. Right, like six, every six hours, there's another like slightly uncomfortable sounding story for the Big Ten and or just about everybody in it. Yeah. Yeah. You make this gross for everybody and, and see what happens. And I guess if, uh, if the Big Ten, like we said before, if they want to play it the hard way, Michigan is making it apparent that they are, they're ready to go to bat and make this a mess. Yeah, I just want to point out, I said this on Twitter and I'll say it again. The whole conference, the whole conference, basically, colluded to take us down and we ran the table last year. Correct. Shut up, losers. I don't want to hear. I know you said this at the top too. Hold I don't, the L's, baby. I don't want to hear one fucking word from you losers ever again, period, full stop, about 2021 or 2022. Nope. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. That's right. Speaking talk about of Purdue? people who need to shut up, Ryan Walters. <laughs> Let's talk about Purdue. <laughs> yeah, that happened, and it. Uh, I mean, it went pretty much like every other Michigan game has this year. Final score of forty-one to thirteen. Where do you want to start on this one? I want to start with all the people who were like, looked at that backdoor cover, and were like, <laughs> "It's because they didn't have the signs this time." Like, I'm, I'm ready to jump off of a cliff. And actually, no, I'm ready to push those people <laughs> off of a cliff. Like, yeah, let's recap, because Purdue scored six points in this game, three of them on a field goal off a muffed punt, which we'll talk about, three of them off a, a short field set up by a Michigan fourth and one that they didn't get, mm-hmm. which we can also talk about, and then a touchdown with, I think it was, what, eight, eight seconds left in the game on a fourth down heave to the end zone against uh, on a drive that was almost entirely against Michigan's third string. Like, if you watched that game and came away thinking that Michigan looked worse on defense, I, I don't know what to tell you, because you don't know ball. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's, again, brain-dead takeaways here of, you know, oh, Michigan gave up the most points they've given up all year. Like, sure, on the backdoor cover on a touchdown against mostly the third-string defense in the final minute. Like, okay, I guess if you want to make that argument, go crazy because I'm, I'm not taking you seriously. I kind of want to start with the offense, though. I thought there was more of interest there For that sure. came out of this game. I mean, J.J. completed 65% of his passes for 335 yards at 9.1 yards an attempt, and it felt while it was happening like kind of an off game, which is wild. I mean, it (laughs) kind of tells you how good J.J. has been this year. I I did think some of that was on J.J. and that it seemed like he had a few more throws that were just a little bit off, a little bit behind guys, or the timing wasn't quite right. But some of it was definitely on the receivers as well. I caught, like, God, there had to be four or five throws that were not perfect but you know on a guy's shoulder on his hip or you know hit him hitting him in the thighs and he just was not getting help it was the kind of balls that really at this level you should be catching and so I thought it was about you know 50 50 between a not quite precise JJ performance and the receivers just not giving him a lot of help but again I mean this was probably the passing game's second worst performance of the year and it was 65 percent for 335 yards Actually, I was looking back at last year's numbers, and I thought this might have been J.J.'s best performance if you were to stack it up against last year's numbers, like game by game and Big Ten play. Really the only game that compared to this one in terms of efficiency and yardage was the Indiana game. So just making the point that, uh, you know, for the little bit of grumbling we got and the not-quite-sharp performance, this was still pretty fucking good from J.J. Yeah, for sure. And... 
on that note, I thought they had some pretty good like man beater concepts. We talked about Purdue wants to play man. This is Ryan Walters thing. He plays like a, a weird, you know, three, four or like a, a five, two or a five, one, but they want to play man on the outside. That's the, the gist of their defense basically. And we saw some really good stuff in this one. We saw on Michigan's first scoring drive, the go route to Donovan Edwards up the sideline. God, that was the funniest because I mean, I tweeted about this, but our whole row. So we have a gentleman who sits behind us who um, is a former player. He played under Bo, and he had um, a former teammate with him right. sitting next to him. And then just in front of us was uh, Johnny Colasar. Johnny Colasar, that's right. Yeah, so they're all standing around. These are ball knowers. <laughs> These are ball, yeah. They're ball knowers, and they're standing around. Matt and I are, are between all of these people, right? Like, Colasar's in front of us, you know. And all of us, literally every single one of us, saw Donovan Edwards and a linebacker, and the whole row was like, JJ, Dono. J- we, we're like, we're like yelling at him as though he right, can like he hear can us. hear us from we're like, you know, JJ, do you yards see away. it? Do you see it? Do you see it? And of course, he saw it right away. Well, it, I mean, it was especially funny because Purdue. I mean, Ed- Edwards, I think, starts in the backfield and then motions out to a far outside receiver position, and they have a corner out there, but they don't want to have the corner come out on a running back and then have a linebacker matched up with. I don't remember if it was Roman Wilson or who was split out in the slot, but somebody you don't want a linebacker on. And so Purdue sees this, and they're pointing to a, a linebacker. I think it was their middle linebacker who's kind of a, a short, like, pudgy guy. Looks like a 1985 linebacker, not a 2023 linebacker. So all of a sudden, he's hauling ass trying to get out to Donovan Edwards, and it's like 10 yards inside of him at the snap. And when you've got Donovan Edwards and that guy chasing him, like, the, it's over. It's over from the snap. Yeah. And J.J. knew it. Yeah. And he hit it, put it right in stride. Unfortunately, Donovan couldn't, you know, take it into the end zone. He was a little bit off balance as he caught it and went out of bounds at the two. But, you know, Michigan punched it in immediately. And, and then just, I guess, further on the point about the, the concepts they had in the past game, they got Roman Wilson a couple times on crossing routes. He had a huge game. I think it was nine catches for 143 yards, even with a drop or two. Yeah, huge game. They had uh, a back shoulder jump ball to Colston Loveland, which we've talked about. Like, if you want to put a safety or a linebacker on Colston Loveland and man, good luck. They had a couple whip routes, which are, I'm sure you've seen these, where uh, I think it was mostly Roman Wilson, Tyler Morris once, where you have a slot guy, starts to run an in route, and then he puts his foot in the ground and cuts and turns the other direction and turns it into an out route. And they had that at least twice for pretty sizable chunks and first downs. Again, all stuff that was drawn up to take advantage of man coverage. And they knew they were going to get that not only against Purdue, but maybe more relevantly, Penn State and Ohio State. Penn State in particular. They're going to have the guys to play man, so I think you're going to see a lot of that. And I think it was not a coincidence that Michigan used this as a test run for a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It'll be interesting, obviously. We've got Penn State this week. We'll talk about that. But especially um, especially with the, the defensive ends we're likely to see, and that's something we can talk about too as we talk about the offense because I do think we talked about Purdue having some pretty good defensive ends. and so They did, and they got a little bit of pressure, and I thought that was part of J.J.'s day was that he a couple times got a little bit of happy feet, for lack of a better term, and had a couple throws where he wasn't like he was a little bit off platform or kind of moving around shuffling to avoid a, a little bit of pocket collapsing but I mean again it, it wasn't exactly bad in terms of the overall outcome I think they ended up with two sacks or, or three I don't remember if it was two or three depending on if you count the uh the one at the end of the half when Michigan tried to throw the Hail Mary and, and didn't get it off 
Anyway, I thought that the tackles for the most part held up pretty well outside of a couple instances where somebody was getting around the edge. But yeah, I mean, there were a couple of shaky moments for Ladarius Henderson. Henderson had one bad one in particular. I didn't think he was bad otherwise. It was a lot of, you know, not necessarily dominating and totally shutting a guy off, but for the most part kind of forcing him around the outside long enough for J.J. to you know, to be able to make a read and get rid of the ball if he had something there. Yeah, but the initial point I was trying to make is, you know, we had these ends for Purdue. We've got another good set of defensive ends coming up for Penn State. And so back maybe. shoulder, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll talk about that later. But back shoulder jump ball to Loveland feels like a thing that's going to be viable in a few days too. Or like those whip routes. I mean, get stuff that, that you fast. can get out in a second and a half. Michigan's tackles are not get, like nobody's getting to the quarterback in a second and a half. You can if you even provide like cursory presence <laughs> to obstruct the guy, like you've got time to run some of the stuff Michigan was running. And so that again, I think all of that was kind of part of preparation for Penn State, which. We'll talk about this a little bit more, too, but, I mean, a lot of what Michigan was doing was pretty vanilla, and I I think you said during the game that it feels like we probably spent 80% of our time preparing for Penn State, and some of that's relevant to Purdue, and some of it's not. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, listen, respectfully, I know we're going to talk about the run game because there was a lot of grumbling about the run game, and I understand why, but my brother in Christ, they were not trying that hard. No. Like, and the minute they did, right, Samaj Morgan— all the way, like it was right. just, it was so. Vin- I mean, no JJ runs in this game. No, no right. JJ. There was runs, not a, a no JJ keeper. Reads. No zone. Uh, there may have been a couple zone reads where he had the option to keep, but it was vanishingly few, and he didn't actually keep on any of them. So it seems like they were pretty much turned off for this game. There really wasn't any of the stuff that we've seen over the last several weeks that was an attempt to get outside, you know, reverse kind of stuff until, like you mentioned, Samaj Morgan, and all of a sudden it really, really works. Right. Like, they're just, they're just not trying that hard, respectfully. Like, yeah. it, it very much shades of Illinois last year. Well, that's how they've—I mean, let's be realistic. That is how Michigan has played most games for about the past three years other than Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan State. Correct. Everything else is we're going to do the bare minimum— to win this game, and we're probably still going to win comfortably, and they do. And then people grumble afterward, like, eh, X and Y didn't look very good, this wasn't very good, and it's like, it doesn't actually matter because they weren't trying. (laughs) They weren't actually trying to do something specifically to beat Purdue because if they had, we would have seen some of that stuff that they've done so well to take advantage of teams doing what Purdue is going to do, or what Purdue did, I should say. So let's transition, I think, from there to the run game because you made the point that there was a lot of grumbling during the game and after. Yeah, there was. And, you know, some of it is definitely offensive line related, right? I mean, there are downgrades at center. Nobody is Olu Oluwatimi. Yeah, Oluwatimi was one of the best centers I've ever seen. Like, that was going to be a step down. And I think the same probably holds true at left tackle. Like, Ladarius Henderson has been pretty good since he came in. He's a solid player, and he's going to be drafted. But I think it's been an increment down from what they had last year in Ryan Hayes. So a little bit of a, a step down at two of those positions. But then, the bigger thing is quorum, right? Right. And it's the—it's not that, I mean, I do think there's a little bit of him having lost a step since the injury, just like the tiniest bit. But the real issue with quorum is that... It's not quorum's performance. He's down and carries by a significant margin. And he's like, when respectfully to Donovan Edwards, I feel like every time we hand the ball off to Donovan Edwards, we gain exactly one yard and we're <laughs> lighting those, we're lighting those carries on fire. Well, yeah, we were talking about this in the car and I looked it up and last year through nine games. So at the same point in the season, Corum had 199 carries. 
I mean, Michigan's game plan last year was Blake Corum for 20 to 25 touches a game, and that was the core of the offense. Everything was built around that. This year, through nine games, he's got 127. That's obviously just a ton of opportunities you've taken off the board for the best running back in the country. And I think that's part of the reason he's had fewer huge runs. I mean, he's still averaging, if you look at the numbers, he's at 5.2 yards a carry this year. Last year, he was at 5.9. And that 5.2 this year is with something like 20% of his carries. I couldn't find the exact number, but like 20% of his carries are inside the opponent's 10-yard line. So it's just grinded out goal line stuff that's dragging the numbers down. I think, I mean, from my point of view, Corum has been pretty close to what he was last year, if not what he was. We haven't seen as many big runs, which I think there's another reason for that, but the overall run game results are just going to suffer somewhat when you've got the best running back in the country and you're giving him eight fewer carries per game than last year. And those carries are going to Donovan Edwards, who's had a little bit of a down year for various reasons, or they're turning into opportunities for JJ in the passing game. And that's what I wanted to talk about next was the third reason I think is unlike what we saw for most of last year, defenses are still playing like really aggressively against the run game. I mean, last year it was a lot of, you know, we talked about it with Maryland and Iowa and even Penn State to some extent. It was and Michigan, and Michigan State. State too, right. A lot of teams kind of playing straight like 4-3 or 4 four two five nickel stuff against Michigan and Michigan's base packages and Michigan just taking six, six and a half yards of carry and defenses saying, we're going to let you milk that and try to hold, like we're going to play bend but don't break and let you play that way. And that's just not what we've seen this year. For Purdue specifically, that meant a lot of eight in the box with two of their three safety-shaped guys crashing on any kind of run action. So they had man on the outside, and they had one guy playing about 25 yards in center field, and everybody else was within about three yards at the line of scrimmage by the time a running back was hitting that point. You know, we talked last week about why teams are continuing to do that when J.J.'s doing what he's doing, and I think this game was a little bit of an answer to that, which is maybe J.J. has an off day. Maybe the passing game, you know, you get some drops that kill drives, and you hang in the game for a little while. But opposing teams don't think that they can play straight up and hang in the game against Michigan's run game. That's what Jim Harbaugh's like 1A offense is, right? He wants to pound the ball, fuck with your gaps, and run it. This year he's obviously been more willing to, to let J.J. air it out, I think in part because J.J.'s been so good, but also in part because teams are continuing to play that way. And that's just a lot of deference to the run game that I don't think people are acknowledging. They're saying the run game is so much worse. Like, is this... Uh, you know, this isn't a national championship caliber run game. We we don't have what we had last year. And I mean, it's not as productive as it was last year. But again, with that deference that opponents are giving, I think they still see this as one of the best run games in the country and are playing accordingly. And the way that they're playing is directly corresponding to the opportunities that JJ is having in the passing game and what he's been able to do to take advantage of that. Right. I mean, it's, you know, to make a comparison to another thing we see happen in this sport, right? It's when you've got a great pass rushing end or a great defensive tackle that has to eat a double and you free up the guy on the other side. Like how many Chase Winovich sacks were generated because Rashawn Gary was eating a double, right? right? It's the same thing, except that the run game is eating all of this misery and JJ gets the benefit of that. Right. And again, you're still seeing Blake Corum averaging, you know, 5.2 yards a carry. It's not like the run game is substantially worse when Corum is getting the opportunity to do Corum things. He's just gotten way fewer of those. And I think that's not really what it's going to look like down the stretch here against Penn State, Ohio State, in a hypothetical Big Ten championship game in the playoff. They're saving Corum for these games. 
and now is when you deploy him. So I, I don't think you're going to see 12 carries for Blake Corum against Penn State or, you know, in a playoff matchup or whatever. I just don't think that the run game as it looks now is necessarily representative of the run game Michigan is going to roll out when everything is on the line. Yeah, I think that's right. I just – these two things, the run game and the passing game, are a marriage. Correct. And – they're very in, intertwined in terms of results. Right. And in, in prior iterations of this marriage, the, you know, the passing game has made less of the money and the running game has made more of the money. And now, you know, it's just, it, that's how it works. They, they function together. They don't function separately. And it's weird to me when people try to, to isolate them and not act like they have a totally like interwoven relationship with each other from a results perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree on that. So anyway, I think the grumbling's, I guess, a little excessive. Again, I just think we're going to see a different game plan on the ground against Penn State and Ohio State. I think you're going to see more of Corum. I think you're going to see more different usages of Donovan Edwards. They had him out this past week with Kalel Mullings a couple times in some interesting packages. I think you're going to see more zone read keeps from JJ. They've That's always been the case, right, the last couple of years, that if it's a game that matters, the keeps are turned on. And if it's a game that doesn't, they mostly aren't. So it, it's just going to look different. And uh, I'm not particularly concerned about it. I'm not concerned about the run game at all in the way that I think some people seem to be, even if it is a, a slight step down from last year. All right, you want to talk about the defense? What is there even to say? <laughs> not a lot. I mean, it was pretty much what we expected against a pretty dismal offense. Yeah, I mean, except for the one time where we were playing with Waller, whatever, got lost at corner, unclear. Yeah, I saw some people mention that uh, – Josh Wallace was kind of in and out. At one point, he went to the locker room, and they were rotating guys. I mean, even in this game, with the starters played fairly late into the game, but it was, as has been the case all year on defense, extremely heavy rotation. I mean, you had you know Cam Good and Rayshon Benny and DJ Waller and various other guys out there, even in the second quarter, where it was like, again, we're not taking this that seriously. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, – a pretty dominant performance from the defensive line as per usual. Hudson Card was under significant duress for a lot of the game. I believe he was uh, pressured 20 times on 30 dropbacks, which yikes, that's a lot. Michigan only ended up with one sack, but when you're getting pressure on almost every throw, you're throwing off balance, you're trying to step away from somebody. A couple times his arm got hit. There just was not going to be much there for Purdue in the passing game, and uh, in fact, one of the uh, the earlier throws when he got pressure was one that kind of fluttered, and Will Johnson stepped in front of him and picked off. He's the Purdue killer right now with three picks and very nearly had a fourth in the end zone. Uh, th- three picks against Purdue, I should say, in two games now between the Big Ten championship game last year and this one, and then yeah. just missed the one in the end zone on uh, one of Purdue's field goal drives. But yeah, there was not a lot there in the passing game and not a lot in the running game either. I mean, Devin Mockaby was okay but didn't really do anything of note I think he ended up with around 30 some rushing yards just nobody's done anything on the ground against this defense all year and again I mean when you put all that together you get Purdue having 194 total yards at about 3.9 yards of play before that last minute garbage time touchdown drive that we mentioned against mostly the third stringers I noticed after Purdue got down to about the 20 yard line or so I think they had a like a second and whatever and they put uh, Mason Graham back out and the first play, he just consumes the interior of the offensive line and eats the running back in the backfield. And it's like, all right, they were tired of that. <laughs> and then uh, on the last play, they actually put Mikey out there. And Mikey was actually the corner who gave up the that looping touchdown throw. But they kind of wanted the, um, not, not the shutout, but 
they wanted the cover basically at the very end they put a couple guys out there to try to get it anyway most of that drive came against Amorian Walker missing a couple tackles and various other down on the depth chart guys a TJ guy and like Trey Pierce were out there it was it, it was deep into the garbage time for sure at that point from a rotational standpoint but for sure but we got all the brain dead takes about giving up the most points most we've points given all, all season, all season. <laughs> yeah. I, again just watch the game if your takeaway from this was that Michigan's defense somehow suffered from not having Connor Stallions, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it was pretty pretty dominant. And, in fact, after the game, we saw the uh, the new SP Plus numbers came out, and the defense has risen to number one. In fact, one of our listeners, I think, made the comment that Iowa fired Brian Ferentz, and immediately their defense dropped from number one in SP Plus down to number two. So might not be a coincidence. There's <laughs> some sort of corollary there. I want to say one more thing about listeners. This is the craziest experience that I have ever had was Matt and I are waiting at the gates to get into the stadium before the game. And we are talking and we're talking about nothing. Like it was just, it was super crowded there. We were trying to figure out what gate we should go in at because it was kind of a mess. There were some new uh, weapons detectors, I guess, that you had to go through like single file. So anyway, it was kind of backed up and we were like, should we stay here? Should we go to the other gate? Yeah, we were just having like a, a run-of-the-mill conversation about this when um, a, a person named Clay, hi Clay, if you're listening, he says, he, from our voices, he was like, do you two do a podcast? <laughs> and we were like, yeah. And he, was, he recognized us off of our voices, which was crazy. Right, just from having a normal conversation in a crowd. <laughs> right. Never it had that happen wild. before. So anyway, that was like an aside. It didn't have anything to do with the game, but it was interesting about being at the game. There's one more thing that I wanted to comment on. I know we, you said at the end of the game, um, you're talking about what was going on there at the, at the end of the game. I want to talk about a thing that happened at the end of the game, which is Ryan fucking Walters. Oh, yeah. Listen. Earlier this week, Ryan Walters had earned my respect by being the only coach in the Big Ten who was able to or willing to put his name behind what he was saying about Michigan. We got a little bit of that from Matt Rule, too. Yeah. But, like, to really be like, yeah, punish them. We know it's not allegations anymore. Like, Yeah, we have video evidence. Uh, or, you know, they bought the tickets. We have video evidence of people in the seats. Like, we know what happened. They've been which at is a, a handful sort of, of our true. games or whatever it is that he said. And I respected that. I was like, that's cool. Good for you. If you if you are advocating for this punishment, I respect that you have gotten up in front of the camera. Right. You're saying it to our face. That's with fine. With your whole chest. But then what you don't get to do, <laughs> what you don't get to do is the drive-by handshake on Jim Harbaugh after the game. No, if you're going to call that man out, basically as a cheater and a liar and tell him that you tell the world that you think he deserves to be punished for this behavior. You better look that man in the eye, right? You better look that man. He said it was the fastest handshake of all time. Like if you're watching the the clip on TV, you barely even see him. He's just, I literally didn't see him the first three times. I didn't, I had to watch it through. I get a slow-mo that bit. Just a pruder film, the handshake Mm -hmm. because it was like, no, you have to look that man in the eye. If, if you're going to call his, his character into question, you have to look that man in the eye. If you're going to advocate that he should yeah, be punished Whatever for this, respect you gained was lost at, at that point. You have to look him in the eye. Like, be so serious. I, like, I was so mad. I was mad for Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> and then I saw someone tweet. I can't remember who it was, but someone put out a tweet that was like, maybe Jim Harbaugh just blew by that guy because he was looking for Jeff Brom. <laughs> like, just didn't even realize. Yeah. Who's their coach again? <laughs> like, who are you, sir? Oh, yeah. Um, Very funny. But, yeah, you suck. 
And also, you had our signs. Fuck off. Thank yeah, there's you. been a lot going around. Like, there's a lot of rumors going around that Illinois was known to have our signs last year. And that was part of the reason that Michigan used wristbands in this game. Turns out there's actually a very simple solution if you think somebody else is stealing your signs, which is wear wristbands. So, you know, that's a thing. If only teams had whole equipment staffs who could put this together for them. Well, that'd just be silly. All right, last point was on special teams. There were two things I wanted to talk about here. First one, we mentioned earlier the muff punt that led to Purdue's first field goal. Yeah. So... This was frustrating because it's been, we've kind of seen it coming all year, where Tyler Morris in particular has struggled to get to the ball. And there have been a number of these punts that bounced and rolled, and some of them were rugby-style things where it's like, uh, it's really tough to get to, and you just got to kind of take your chances that it's not going to be the the bad roll. But the one in this game, it was pretty catchable. He started to come up on it. He hesitated. He didn't field it. And he didn't gesture to his guys to get out of the way. And so it hits one of the up men blocking and Purdue recovers just before it goes out of bounds. And again, it was just something you could see coming early in the early in the year with the way that he was struggling to get to the ball was you've got to get there or you've got to be decisive about signaling to everybody who's coming back to block to get out of the way or this is going to happen. And it did. I guess the good news is that they at least got it out of the way in this one even if that means that Jake Thaw returns most of the punts against Penn State. He doesn't have the explosiveness, obviously. You lose a good amount there in terms of what you get in the return game. But I don't think Penn State is the kind of game where you can afford a mistake like that. Yeah, you can't. You can't do that against teams that can actually beat you. Right. And Purdue was not one of those teams. Well, true. Yeah, it didn't end up mattering at all. The other item was field goal kicking. Still functional, it turns out. James Turner went two for two in this game with... No apparent signs of rust after basically like a month of doing nothing. So that was good to see. Um, Field goal kicking still works. That's it. Yeah, that was basically it. There was not that much that was interesting about this game. So we're on to Penn State. We're going to give Penn State the preview we think it deserves. So we're not going to talk about that all that much. Yeah, we'll do that a little later in the week. I think we we did want to talk a little bit about some of the other games that happened this past weekend, including some of the Big Ten games, including Penn State. For sure. It was very annoying to be a night game this particular week because we were in the time slot against two other very good night games and we got the garbage night game (laughs) but lsu bama and usc washington were rolling in the same time slot and we were very frustrated to not be able to watch those um we did dvr lsu bama Bama, though just so we could come back and watch it yesterday yeah um that was a really really fun game until Jaden daniels went out um yeah to be fair bama had just gone up two touchdowns at that point and then Daniels on a, a pass attempt, he throws a deep ball and he gets just crushed right up under his helmet by Dallas Turner for Bama. Probably should have been targeting. I mean, they called roughing the passer, but it was a pretty bad headshot. I don't think it was necessarily intentionally egregious, but when you launch and come right up into somebody's chin, Daniels was obviously pretty woozy. I think he maybe came back in for one more play and then came out because it was clear that he was not not right. Yeah, And at that point, with Bama already up, they had just extended the lead to 42-28 after a tipped ball interception. And without Daniels, that was kind of the end of it for LSU. So it was disappointing that we didn't get to see that fourth quarter play out. It may not have changed anything, given that Bama was kind of in control at that point. But it it was a really fun game, and I thought Jalen Milrow for Bama was excellent. Um, I mean, LSU's defense is atrocious. Their secondary, it was already very bad (laughs) for most of the year, and they were starting three true freshmen at corner in this game somehow. Jeez. So 
you kind of expected that Bama was not really going to struggle on offense, even though their offense has been a little shaky up and down through this year. But it does kind of feel like they're getting a little bit closer to typical Bama. I mean, it's probably still their worst team in a while, like maybe a, a decade, more than a decade under Saban. Uh, 2019, there was the year we got them in the whatever shitty bowl game we went to with Shea Patterson. Yeah, but even that Bama team, I mean, that was a that was a pretty good Bama team. That was the year Mac Jones set the all-time pass efficiency record, and they had, what, they had Jamison Williams, and was I'm that still saying, a Jerry Judy team? I can't remember what the combination Bama was. Bama is rare. Right, yes. Yeah. But I think that Bama team was, from my point of view, better than this one. And I mean, that Bama team a year later was like a total world-beater monster. Exactly, yes. Yeah, so. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's probably their worst team in a little while. And <laughs> despite that, unless something weird happens here down the stretch, they're going to get their shot against Georgia in the SEC title game to get back to the playoff yet again. So I don't think they're going to beat Georgia, if I'm being honest, but they'll have a shot and we'll see what happens. We also had USC Washington, which was basically exactly what everybody expected, which was no defense played by anyone at all. Yep. <laughs> um, but it, kind of strangely, everybody I think thought, including myself, that this was going to be the Michael Penix show, and it really wasn't. It was the run game that really propelled Washington in this one. Um, you know, normally that run game is like nominally there, but like it's it's the Michael Penix show. Yeah, it's a sideshow to Michael Penix. Not today because – 316 yards rushing against the shit show USC defense. And obviously they fired Alex Grinch immediately. Yeah. Dylan Johnson for Washington. I saw it pointed out that he had 256 rushing yards in this game and 199 of those were before contact, which just, holy shit, 200 yards before contact. That's crazy. Like even by USC standards. Come on, man. That's embarrassing. That's atrocious. That's so bad. Yeah, and that, uh, yeah, like you said, that was finally enough, I guess, for USC to fire Alex Grinch. And my thought immediately after I saw that was that the cursed opportunity now exists for some new coach this coming offseason to hire both Brian Ferentz and Alex Grinch and have potentially the worst coaching staff of all time. Rough. Technically possible. Technically possible. <laughs> Though I don't know that this is Alex Grinch's fault. Like, on the one hand, I do. But on the other hand, I feel like it's the stench of Lincoln Riley. Like, Lincoln Riley can't – there are no good Lincoln Riley defenses ever, no matter who the yeah. coordinator is. I mean, they weren't that bad the first couple of years at Oklahoma, but it does seem like – I don't know. It's kind of like Brian Ferentz and Kirk Ferentz, right? Like, under Kirk Ferentz, those Iowa offenses have been pretty bad for quite a while. But at the same time, like – it can't be this bad. Like, there's got to be something better out there, right? Maybe? Yeah, I don't know. We should talk about Bedlam. That was fun. We also had Bedlam. Rest in peace, Bedlam. Yeah, it's really sad that this was probably the last Oklahoma-Oklahoma State game for at least the foreseeable future. Um, nice for Oklahoma State, I'm sure, to, you know, wave goodbye to Oklahoma leaving for the SEC with the uh, the, the trophy they've got. But... Uh, Anyway, on the plus side of the outcome of this game, per SP+, we now have a 16% chance of Big 12 champion Alan Bowman, since Oklahoma State is tied for the Big 12 lead with Texas. Um, I also want to shout out, the I think it was the band at Oklahoma State for playing my girl Taylor Swift. We are never, ever getting back together oh, yeah. after the game. Very funny. Love right. a million out of ten. <laughs> yeah, so Oklahoma State is... Uh, tied for the conference lead. You know their only loss is in Big 12 play? No, I don't actually. Iowa State. Ew. 
They lost to South Alabama and Iowa State early in the year. The sport is so dumb. And since then, they haven't, they're undefeated since then. Anyway, yeah, some very funny possibilities with the way that the Big 12 plays out. Still doesn't look super promising for them in terms of a playoff spot with the way that things are going elsewhere and with, you know, potentially one loss Georgia in the mix if Bama knocks them off or one loss Michigan or Ohio State, one loss Washington or Oregon. Like, it, it doesn't look great for the Big 12, but... You know, there's time and there's always some chaos that makes things kind of shake out and in, in a way that you never quite see coming. Anyway, speaking of Texas, I saw a couple of people talking about this online after, and there was a lot of conversation on like the post game shows about the way the Texas Kansas state game ended, which was, it went to overtime. Kansas state had come way back in like the late third, early fourth quarter to, to uh, well, they had a chance to take the lead and they botched an extra point. So it was tied Texas kicked a field goal K-State later had a chance to tie on another field goal, missed it, and then ended up getting one right at the buzzer to send it to overtime. But anyway, so they had the botched PAT and a missed chip shot field goal in about the last last quarter or so of that game. So it goes to overtime. Texas kicks a field goal on the opening series. K-State drives down to the Texas four-yard line, and I believe at that point they had second and goal from the four. And they had... They went play action, or they tried like a little pop pass uh, through a couple times. One of them got knocked down. One of them, there just wasn't anything there, and it was incomplete. Keep in mind, this is in Austin. It's the end of the first overtime. Starting in the second overtime, when you score a touchdown, you have to go for two. Kansas State decides at the end of the first overtime, they're just going to go for it on fourth down and try to win the game. And uh, anyway, I saw a couple of people saying, like, Matt must have hated that because <laughs> I've been on my rant the last couple of weeks about how I think teams are going for it too much on fourth down are kind of independent of this, the situation and what they're good at and ending up with a, an incredibly predictable play call that just has little chance of working. I didn't actually think it was that bad of a decision here because, again, you've missed two short field goals. So the field goal itself isn't automatic to tie the game and force a second overtime. And secondly, you're an underdog on the road and you need four yards in one play to win the game like i think that's a pretty reasonable chance i I didn't love it it wasn't like oh yeah you have to go for this like the uh arizona usc one a couple weeks ago where i thought arizona really fucked up by not going for uh, the two-point play against uh, usc's defense in the first overtime and then ended up in a you know a two-point off anyway (laughs) against caleb williams and lost that game this didn't feel like that to me i thought it was pretty reasonable I didn't necessarily love three straight pass plays from the four-yard line when things are tight and you've got a pretty good run game and a, a pretty big quarterback who can move the pile. But, you know, they went for it. There wasn't really anything there on the fourth down throw either. So, you know, maybe you can criticize the play call, but I, I thought it was fine. Um, that was just my view. But I, I know people feel otherwise about <laughs> those fourth down decisions. I didn't hate it, but I thought if you were – angling to do that maybe you're you shouldn't have passed on like two of the prior agreed yeah. three plays or whatever but you know it's not like it's easy to run on the texas defensive interior either so yeah they've got some big boys in they there didn't have a lot of great options i i didn't hate it i didn't love it let's talk about the big 10 apparently there is not a number low enough to satiate the iowa hawkeyes on an over under because my god iowa and northwestern played the worst. I mean, <laughs> it's genuinely hard to fathom how they're playing the same sport as like Jayden USC Daniels. and Washington yeah. or Jaden Daniels. Yeah, like because what the fuck? Yeah, this was Iowa Northwestern scoreless at halftime. The original over under was I think thirty or twenty nine and a half. It was under thirty, I think. Yeah, I think it did end up under thirty. Um, 
anyway, scoreless at halftime. I think I asked you at that point, what's the what's the total here? What's your prediction? Total points scored. And you said, what, 12? I think I said 12. Yeah. I thought that was optimistic. They did just clear 12 <laughs> with uh, Northwestern scoring the tying touchdown with about two minutes left and then Iowa getting into field goal range and kicking the, uh, the walk-off field goal for the 10-7 win. But woof. It was, I mean, it was every Iowa game, really. Yeah, it was so bad. We already Except it was knew. at Wrigley Field, which was kind of fun. I'm sorry for Wrigley Field that they had to watch that because that was lower scoring than like seven or eight baseball games at Wrigley Field this year. <laughs> gross. Just so gross. I mean, we already know they preemptively fired Brian Ferentz, which was super weird, but yikes. Also, the uh, over-under for this week's Iowa Rutgers game is something like, what, 28, like 28 maybe? 28 and a half, 28, 28. That's gross. Yeah, the numbers are getting lower, as they probably should. And yet, Iowa's probably still going to win the West. I mean, Wisconsin lost to Indiana, and Minnesota lost to Illinois. Uh, oh, and also Nebraska lost to Michigan State. So really, everybody that was in contention there has dropped a game back. And uh, yeah, it's going to be Iowa again, despite the football gods. We did pick them before the season. I didn't. We did. There was a moment where that was like, what were we thinking? And now it's like, no, it's, they're inevitable. <laughs> they really are. We talked about Iowa playing Rutgers. We can talk about who Rutgers played last week, which was Ohio State. Um, Ohio State went to Piscataway and looked kind of like shit. Yeah, I mean, this looked like a Big Ten West game for most of it. Rutgers led 9-7 at the half. Oh, and that was a with... Big Ten West game. <laughs> Jesus. So, well, Rutgers led 9-7 at the half, and those nine points came on three drives that all got inside the Ohio State five-yard line, if I'm not mistaken. They just couldn't put it in the end zone, so they kicked three short field goals. They're winning 9-7. They come out of the half. They're driving down. They get inside the Ohio State red zone again, and they try to throw a little, like, looping pass over the middle to the running back, and it gets knocked loose just as he's trying to pull it in, deflects to an Ohio State safety, and he runs it back 93 yards for the touchdown. And all of a sudden, Ohio State's back on top just when it looked like Rutgers was about to go up nine. And that kind of turned the game. I mean, Rutgers did score again, actually, to get back within five early in the fourth quarter. But Ohio State got a, a couple late scores in about the last 10 minutes to you know, put the game away. I don't know. Maybe Ryan Day was a little preoccupied this week with texting Pete Thamel. Uh too busy. Too busy with his... It, they're not really Twitter fingers if he's texting, but the point texting stands. Texting fingers. It's just... Ugh. Yeah, and we saw... We've talked before about those did we really get beat that bad stats where it tracks your net success rate, yours versus your opponents for the given game. I was curious. I thought Rutgers might have actually, like on a play-to-play basis, been the better team. Ohio State did technically finish with the higher net success rate, but it was just barely. They were kind of in the middle of the pack, close to, uh, you know, close to even for the game against Rutgers. Which, I mean, again, this just this team is what it is, and there are real problems offensively, except when Marvin Harrison Jr. is doing Marvin Harrison Jr. things, or when Travion Henderson is in space. That's true. That Henderson, was one of the things I didn't like this week. Is that he he looks like he's he's really up and down, but lately it kind of looks more up. It looks a little bit like he's rounding into shape um, as far as what Ohio State fans thought he would be. Yeah, they've been able to get him out in space a little bit more the last couple of weeks, and he's broken off some chunk runs and turned into more of a threat there than I think they've had on the ground in a while. They still can't really run the ball between the tackles. That's just not his game, and their interior offensive line isn't built for it. So that's still a, you know, a real problem if they get into like you know short yardage situations. But it's been a threat, and Marvin Harrison Jr. is, again, he's still 
the best receiver in the country and maybe the best college receiver in recent memory. I mean, that's a, a pretty shaky offense with iffy quarterback play, a left tackle is one of the worst in power five and no interior run game. And they're going to win probably 11 plus games with a pretty good defense and a lot of Marvin Harrison. So got to give him some credit for that, I guess. And now I guess to our opponent for this week, we'll talk about Penn state's most recent game. They played Maryland and it did look in a lot of ways like a get right performance for them. Um, kind of in an inopportune way for those of us who want them to continue looking like shit. They looked yeah. better against Maryland. Um, they also figured out that you have to throw the ball down the field against Maryland, which I was hoping they would not have figured out in advance of our game. Yeah, they beat Maryland 51-15, to 15, and I, I did think it was Penn State's probably their best performance this year. Um, really the only question is how much weight do you give that relative to you know, two weeks ago, we saw them really struggle with Indiana. And obviously against Ohio State, they couldn't do anything offensively. So I guess when you're thinking about how much does this change my view of Penn State, I would say not a lot. But to your point, I would have preferred that they didn't seem to have uh, suddenly discovered the possibility of throwing the deep ball when they've got some one-on-one opportunities, because that has clicked a little bit this week and last. Maryland played pretty aggressive in terms of man coverage and and got beat a few times. Also worth pointing out here (laughs) in regards to overall performance, Maryland had six actual rushing attempts in this game. And I'm talking non-sack rushing attempts, but if you include sacks, they had a total of negative 49 rushing yards, meaning that with Penn State's 51 points, they got rutgered by 100, right? 51 points to negative 49 rushing yards. Oh, sweet Jesus. (laughs) I think that's technically true, yes. I don't know what to make of that because, I mean, Maryland's usually able to run the ball a little bit. They kind of spread you out, and they usually have a a big guy. It's Roman Hemby is kind of their normal number one back, and he sort of plays the role that Mayan Williams has played for Ohio State, which is we spread you out, you have to play a light box, and then we have a bulldozer who runs into that and, and usually puts up pretty respectable numbers. But I think he only had four rushing attempts in this game, four or five rushing attempts. And Maryland's interior offensive line just was completely non-functional in this game. So we haven't ever seen, at least not in the Harbaugh era, a Michigan interior line look like that. What we have seen against Penn State was, you know, last year, 400 and whatever, 427 rushing yards or whatever the number was. It was a really stupid number, yeah. It was way too many. And I think for the most part, when we watch Penn State this year, we've felt like that is probably the weak spot on their defense to the extent that there is a weak spot, a relative weak spot, whereas it's the pass rushers and the defensive backs that make them so tough to play overall. So that was, again, not something I really wanted to see was them totally shutting down Maryland's run game, but I just don't know how much to make of that given how inept their interior line look and how quickly they completely abandon any attempt to do it. And I don't think Michigan's going to look anything like that. And also you're playing from behind for a lot of this game if you're Maryland too. That's right, yes. And so, you know, your opportunities to run the ball, like you're not balanced, right, at that point when you're trying to play catch-up. So there's a little bit of that baked in there. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm excited to, to get a closer look at them here in coming days, and then we'll be back to more fully preview them and then give updates on whatever the hell is going on in NCAA investigation leak world. Yeah, we'll probably try to put something together either Wednesday night or Thursday, maybe kind of see how the uh, the Big Ten situation plays out and if there is an announcement Wednesday. Um, we'll come back for that, maybe some more legal analysis depending what happens. And No more legal certainly... analysis. <laughs> 
Hopefully, I'm, no legal analysis. Hopefully, I'm it won't sick be relevant of at all. Analyzing laws. I don't want to look at their bylaws anymore. You don't want to do more of that after you do your regular trial. No, I don't actually. All right, fair enough. Like, well, I anyway, want, I just want to watch ball. Like, what, like, hopefully, we won't have to worry about that at all, and we can just talk about Penn State and one of the bigger Michigan Penn State games since Judgment Day in '97. Maybe this is a pretty big one. Yeah, it's a big one. It's huge. And we'll be back to preview it. So if you're still here, thank you for listening. And we'll see you back on Wednesday or Thursday. Go Blue.